honestly, in some ways, this is going to be actually the most difficult thing because I'm such friends with you. I'm like, where do yeah. you even <laughs> it's start? Like, how do you even introduce me? How do you do anything? Welcome to Recalibrate, a podcast designed to examine our place in society, how we perceive ourselves, and how to stay grounded in an ever-changing world. I'm Scott de Baudelaire. It took me a while to figure this out, but I have known this week's guest for 14 years, so almost half my life. We originally met online when I was 18 and a young blogger in Dublin, and he was a young blogger in Cork. We've been friends ever since, we've known each other through college, and even when I once hosted the final of Mr Gay Ireland, he was representing a bar in Cork in the competition. More importantly, he's been a wonderful source of support and friendship since I moved back to Ireland from the UK in 2017 and settled down in Cork. The reason for Stephen Spillan being a guest on this week's Recalibrate is not just because he's my friend. He is actively involved in the Church of Ireland. He is currently chair of the Cork Greens, which is the local branch of the Green Party in Ireland. He is also a lifelong campaigner for LGBT and human rights. And he's also part of his native city's LGBT inclusive choir, Choral Confusion. When I was trying to think of who to interview for this series, Stephen was one of the first people to spring to mind. To me, as a lifelong humanist, I've always admired Stephen's faith in God. And he introduced me to a very welcoming Protestant community here in Ireland, specifically the Anglican community in Cork. I've been to a few of his services, especially around International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia, and also uh, to do with the Christmas uh, carol services that take place every year. His sense of higher power, and indeed a higher self, is exactly what ties Stephen's interests and actions together in almost everything he does. And funnily enough, that's not something I properly realised about him until doing this chat. So as a result, you're about to find out something new about one of my best friends at the same time that I found out. So hopefully you'll enjoy this chat with Stephen Spagat. So I've known you for years. Um, and yeah, I... we did try to count at one point and we both got confused. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? it's more than 12 years, isn't it? No, it's... Oh, well more. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. That makes me feel ancient, but I guess the gray hair helps with that as well. Yeah. But like, I've known you, you know, to be involved with so many different groups yeah. since I've known you, basically. Like, I think you were involved with the Students' Union. Yes. Uh, when I first met you, I would have been involved with the SUs, well, specifically UCC SU, um, quite a number college societies ranging from Young Finnegale to the LGBT, LGBT Society. I think I was in Machina Firma and ASIC. I basically was always involved in things. And that's that's the thing that I was going to ask because like I've always known you to be so you know so involved with so many different community groups and they're they were always pretty varied. You know like it was either the the politics or students union or you know, I guess more more recently as well, I've known you to be involved with, um, you know, the Church of Ireland, which we'll get on to later on in, in the podcast. But, you know, at what point did you realise you were either part of a community or realised that these various different groups that you were involved with were communities? 
From a very young age. So growing up, we were as a family involved in the Caravan Club, which I know some people would know uh, from the Inbetweeners. Um, but it was a fantastic group. We went away once a month and had fun. But there was obviously organisers and uh, from very early age, my parents got myself and my sister involved whenever they had to be what was called rally marshal, which was when you organised it, you know, doing the teas and coffees and things like that. And as we got older, um, there was a teenage committee. And um, as we became teenagers, got involved in that and went on to be chair of that, actually, myself. And the teenagers used to actually organise a weekend, normally the October bank holiday somewhere where we'd have a fancy dress for the younger kids and all the rest of it. It's the one weekend where you want teenagers to run it because they're of that mindset that they can run with, with these things. But at the same time, I suppose I would have been involved in scouts. And as well as that, both my parents were involved in a school boards or parents associations growing up. So the idea of being involved in something and, and creating your own sense of community, wherever that meant, whether it was the school community, the, the group of us that went away like that, that traveled together, uh, as well as family. And um, like my grandmother was very involved with the parish council. Growing up, I used to go to pray, prayer nights with her and all the rest. So like the idea of existing outside of groups just doesn't sit with me. There always has to be something more and um, it's just part of who I am and it, it's plus it's a great way to meet people and to, to experience life as far as I'm concerned. So do, do you or would you consider yourself a, an extrovert in that case you know considering you know you seem to get energy or kind of restore your own energy from being surrounded by all these different people? It's it's a bit of a mix there's it's about 50-50. 50% of my time, I love being around other people. And then 50% of the time, I want to shut myself away. I sit in front of the provider of the TV, watching Star Trek or whatever, or reading a book or just playing computer games. I can easily exist when there's a balance between the two of those. With the more recent thing, obviously, with, should we mention COVID? <laughs> but, you know, that balance has gotten thrown out of whack alone a lot more than I'd be used to. And Zoom isn't the same. Zoom is a lot more draining. Um, but at the same time, it has introduced me to, to, to new people. For example, it was a lot easier to get involved with the local I bought a house and so therefore I've ended up on the management committee already of the estate and um, because that's the type of person I am but Not it turns remotely out remotely surprised yeah but it turns out of course I I knew of one of the one other one of the directors the other director actually used to be a teacher that worked in the school my dad works in so it's typical if it's not a connection that I have with someone myself it's one of the family I just can't go anywhere <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of typical and it's one of the many reasons why like any of our friends or the people that we work with you know back in the days when we were in the office if we would go for coffee with you walking down the streets of cork of course you knew everyone hello 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 yes <laughs> and oh. sometimes you'd ask me who was that and i'd be like i don't have a clue <laughs> but i do know them i do <laughs> 
I know their face. Their mother is lovely. I just can't think yeah. of her And I think I've actually said those exact words to you. <laughs> your duty to politics kind of stems from your sense of community that, you know, you've yeah. been involved with all these different groups and, and quite varied groups as well. So probably you were well able to see from an earlier age the various different needs or um, certain requirements that certain groups would have needed. Mm. Well, I suppose the one thing as well growing up, politics wasn't taboo to be discussed. Um, it was a subject at the dinner table. Um, it was talked about. So therefore, political awareness was something that um, what was there um, as well, like, I suppose when I did the junior search, I think it was, well, it wasn't the first year that the, the civics course, but I was definitely uh, in first, like it, I was the first, probably not first, but definitely the second or the third year to do it. So therefore that to me was, I was like, give me more of this. Um, initially, I suppose my approach to, to, to politics would have been more from a Christian democratic uh, point of view that, you know, there, there was a mixture of faith and politics because again with this idea of faith and politics not being discussed is anthema in my family <laughs> it's like no they get discussed um it, which is great you know i grew up with faith being discussed um my my grandmother was great friends with great theologians and, and, and priests who were fantastic people um i'm quite lucky from that point of view that they were fantastic people and they could be you know, they, they were brilliant at teaching faith um, and instilling faith, but it definitely, I think faith informed my politics, especially younger, but not that in the sense that it was to stop things from happening, but it was rooting civil rights in a faith discourse. It was rooting the social welfare system in a faith context. It was this thing of how we look after people is important. And faith explains why that. Now, as I've grown older, I've moved away from the Christian democratic side of it, but the faith is still there. I'm just a lot more left wing <laughs> than I was when I was younger. And I, which is, I seem to be going the opposite. When they say that you go more conservative as you get older, I've gone more left wing. Um, so it, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and that has led me going from Fine Gael to the Green Party. Um, but it is... Uh, it's interesting that journey but faith has been there the whole along and even now faith is really as well from a younger age was very much more on the social side of uh, politics like social welfare and, and how we look after people faith now is care for creation and that environmental side of things and and what we need to do as as community and as as, as a nation and uh, and and to force community to, to force companies and governments to do the right thing is actually being informed a lot from a, a faith perspective which is fascinating in its own way it is because in some ways that that isn't even something that i really thought about you know and despite knowing you for ages that i never thought your faith would have influenced your politics but when you explain it like that it makes a hell of a lot of sense but does that mean then that your sense of faith has been strong in you from a much younger age? Yeah, um, like I was one of those kids who took my Holy Communion and Confirmation seriously. It wasn't just a money-making exercise. Um, 
and it is <laughs> granted I like the money it got spent um, but I did and I used to go to and I, I growing up I remember if I was on midterm or whatever my, my grandmother was a, a once a once a day mass woman I used to go with her I used to get up early and go over and go to mass with her and I would stay and say the rosary as well and um, it was something it is faith is something that was always important to me and and Pope Francis, I think, is someone that actually has actually improved that for me anyway. And certainly in that discourse that I, I mentioned earlier about the environment and that like Laudato Si, that encyclical, and even his uh, most recent one, uh, Fratelli, or oh, well, it's Latin and I don't know how to say it, or I can't think of it right off the, the top of my head, the, the dear brothers and sisters. Um, which is about care for our fellow person, you know, it is, you know, he's Argentinian, so therefore he has that more left-wing Catholic that we are not used to in Europe, um, which is fantastic then to see him as Pope and, and the things that he is trying to, to change. But I think he, what his, what he's talking about, there's many other faith leaders talking about, which is fantastic to see. Like recently there was a global interfaith commission uh, launched and one of the things that they're taking on is um, the treatment of LGBT people and of course um, trying to ban or move away from conversion therapy and you actually have Muslim leaders signing this, you have Judean, Jewish leaders, uh, Hindu as well as from the big Christian faiths including Mormonism, Pentecostal, um, you know, the, the, the more this is something that is actually bringing people together. And I think the environment does something very sim similar. You've got groups such as here in Ireland, you have Eco Congregation, which works across all the denominations in Ireland. And um, you have monastic groups that are involved in it. So, for example, uh, the monks in Glenstall Abbey. Um, and then you've got parish groups uh, from Quakers, Presbyterian, Catholic, and Church of Ireland in my own parish, we work actually very close. So in St. Anne's Shandon, we actually work with the cathedral, uh, the North Cathedral, the, the Roman Catholic Cathedral and Co. We work together because there is no point in us all doing our own thing. This is something that brings us all together, whether we, you're a person of faith or not, caring for the environment, especially in a local context, is something that we can all do. And it, it does create community. And I think that's what people don't set out to do with this stuff is they don't set out to create community they, they set out to do something specific but they create community along the way and i think that's what we all forget about when especially when we're in those lost moments we don't know where to find community but the thing is when you go out and get something done that's where you find community you mentioned you know pope francis and that I guess maybe in comparison to, to previous Catholic leaders, you know, he's made several attempts to try and be a lot more progressive um, socially than maybe some some predecessors. Um, you know, and you mentioned the fact that he's probably a little bit more of that um, Latino left-wing style that we're not used to in Ireland. Um, that's high praise from yourself as someone who's part of the, the Church of Ireland. Um, and not only that, but you you converted to uh, Protestantism to Church of Ireland a few years ago. Um, considering your 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 history and your 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 family kind of connections with um, the Catholic Church, what made you 
change and want to find a new a new community with the Church of Ireland? So, as I said, faith is really, really important to me. Um, when I was younger, as I said, used to go to mass with my grandmother. And of course, as a family, we went every Sunday and um, no matter where we were in the country. Um, but as we got older, you know, the, the various uh, scandals came out. And obviously that knocks a lot of people's faith in the institution, um, which I, I think we need to really separate what your people's personal faith is in this God, in God or whatever you want to call it yourself, um, a, a, you know, versus the institutions that are supposed to serve both the people and God, which, you know, can be quite difficult to balance and some of them failed to do and at times have failed catastrophically. And I suppose there would have been a period around then where I suppose that institutional faith was gone wasn't going to mass, we didn't see the point. Um, still prayed, always prayed. Um, and I did that very Irish thing of every time an ambulance passes, you bless yourself um, and say a little prayer, you know, or the same with the fire brigade, you know, it is the thing you do. And, it, and obviously passing a funeral hearse, obviously as well. But I suppose, when I moved to Germany for a bit, I think that gave me space away from, I suppose, a very Catholic dominated upbringing. Um, but at the certainly the family I live with, they weren't very religious. Um, they, they didn't like weekly mass wasn't a thing. I did go to the Kölner Dom statue mass in German, didn't understand a whole lot of it. Obviously, you kind of know what's going on because it follows the similar thing, but you know, it it made it made very little actual sense, especially the sermon. Didn't have a clue. But when I came back, you know, while so you know, it was great to meet up with friends and family and all that again. You know, that bit was missing, and I I remember looking into lots of different faiths, um, looking up, um. Baha'i and looking up all these kind of random things and they just happened to be a service for International Day Against Homophobia and actually it was just that yeah there was no ands back then there was no biphobia transphobia as it is now but it was on in St. Fimbers Cathedral and I went in and I just got this very welcoming feeling from the very beginning and uh, and something that was really important visibly at the time, which of course I only discovered this afterwards, we were chatting to people, the Bishop, Bishop Paul Colton was in attendance and you know, was making a point by being in attendance to show his support. And I remember chatting to him afterwards and having, you know, starting conversations with him, with, the, with Dean Nigel Dunn. And at the time the Dean's vicar was uh, John Erdis. And that just started off a conversation both at home and I suppose a continuing one with the, the, the bishop and the, the dean and, and uh, the Reverend John Ardis, you know, about what the Church of Ireland was and at home with what my connection to it was, because I knew that my great grandmother, um, her surname was Wilson, which isn't very Catholic, and her first name was Emily, which also isn't very Catholic. 
uh, and my mother's named after her as well. So therefore, there, there was a, a very non-Catholic tradition in, in the family, but it was actually, it was Church of Ireland and she had actually attended St. Finbar's Cathedral and there was a connection and where her funeral was. And it was something I discovered later again was that my, well, my grandmother and her sister went to her funeral, which this is back in the days when you weren't allowed. And her sister afterwards went to confession and got rebuked by the priest for attending. And when this was said at home after the after a few days, a few weeks, I'd say after the funeral or whatever, and this was said, and my mum asked my grandmother, did you go to confession? And she said, no, it was the right thing to do. So as far as she was concerned, there was nothing to confess. It's what you did. It was her husband's mother. She had, you know, she went, she did the right thing. You know, and, and I think that's where institutional faith lets us down. Because that personal faith is about caring for that person. It is being there for your husband, your wife, your partner, whatever a church institution may say, you just go do it. And I think that that was part of that feeling that I think that I got in there. It wasn't the case of you went there because you had to go there, that you were expected. But it was just you went to because you wanted to be there that's really interesting and you know considering the fact that there may be people from outside of ireland listening to this it's probably worth noting that you know even in post-independence ireland there were still certain social divides mm. between the majority catholic population in the republic of ireland and the minority protestant community and the the, the temera decree was still in force you know if if a catholic got married a protestant all the children had they had and if they wanted to get married in the catholic church they had to agree that all the children would be raised catholic didn't matter mm. and my my great-grandmother was a she must have been a strong woman she married a catholic had one child which was very few on either side of the divide from from, from the time but you know but she kept her faith she refused to convert and she kept her faith and considering the the social history, I guess, between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, you know, did, did that topic come up at all for you when you wanted to converse? Because I guess for our generation, that was never really a big deal anymore. You know, we grew up at the end of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and even though both of us obviously grew up in, in the Republic. Um, but obviously, you know, if that sort of topic has been around in in our social parlance as well there's usually some sort of either joke or banter about catholics and protestants in some way even the way you you mentioned the names of of people it's something that i remember when i spent a little bit a little bit of time in belfast was that um up there many would be able to pick out whether or not you're from one side of the community or another purely based on your given name um, you know, whether it was something like Emily versus Sinead, if it was, you know, a more uh, Protestant name versus maybe a more traditionally Gaelic name, and Gaelic then at that time meant more likely Catholic. Um, but, it, you know, for us growing up, even if somebody was necessarily, you know, Protestant or Catholic or neither, um, it didn't make it that that big of a deal. But for you, when you were making that decision, was that something that you were aware of? It was something I was aware of, but at that point, nobody really was attaching labels. 
um, like my aunt and uncle, um, who would be very devout Christians, were delighted. They said, you're going to church. That's that's what's important. You have faith. Again, it's, it's the emphasis on the personal faith. I know my grandmother wasn't a big fan of the idea, but she lived with it, you know. She wasn't a big fan of the idea of me being gay either, but she lived with that too. In fact, the only time she ever gave out about a boyfriend of mine was that he was a smoker. As far as she could do, that was the worst thing I could do was date a smoker. That was the worst thing, you know? And I think she would have said the same if it was a girl that she had found smoking that day. She would have said the same thing, but that was her. She cared more about that than anything else. Which Protestant, says a lot about her. <laughs> the Protestant thing is is fine, but the John Player Blue package now, which can't be can't, can't exactly, be. you know. <laughs> so you you mentioned another um, point of of information about you that obviously traditionally in Ireland and in other uh, Christian countries, whether they're Catholic or or anything else, if they if they were traditionally a little bit more conservative, the topic of sexuality obviously uh, played a contentious role when it came to religion and faith. So for you, um, you know, where there's your realization of you being gay, how did that fall into line with your faith, either, you know, in, in general or particularly now with this newfound community in, in the Church of Ireland? Well, I suppose with my former faith, it, when I was figuring myself out, it was the same time as all the scandals and that. So therefore, a lot of that institutional faith had was gone from me. Like so, therefore, it, it didn't really play into it the whole a whole lot. While for me, for within the Church of Ireland, my very first introduction to it was actually a service specifically for the LGBT community. And so therefore, that's where the conversation started from the very beginning was how welcoming will this place be? And the cathedral is fantastically affirming. And from there, because I moved job out to the north side of the city that I moved to St. Anne's Shandon, which specifically is an inclusive church. And, you know, the rainbow flag is in, in, in the church. So... It never, I never had to do that discourse myself within the Church of Ireland because it was there in rainbow, and you already said in black and white, but in rainbow right in front of me from the very beginning that this is where somewhere I can be. And I think that's something that lots of parishes want to be. They want a place where people can be. And I think it's something that I'm now a church warden in St. Anne's and I'm chair of the parish school board. You know, it's if there are places where we want our parishioners and our pupils where they can be themselves, not have to be anything else. We don't care what color you are, what how you were raised, what gender identity you have, your sexual orientation, whether you're rich or poor as long as you're there once you're there for you that's what's important and you are welcome no matter where you are uh, as the tagline that we say is wherever whoever you are and wherever you are on your journey in faith you are welcome here and i think that's the message that churches need to get out it's not that we're going to judge you for this that or the other but we're here to welcome you wherever you are. 
that's the message because that's community community welcomes you it doesn't judge you because with so many of us especially those of us who grew up lgbt we have had to create our own communities growing up because we didn't play sports or we didn't get involved in you know in certain groups because we didn't know how people would react and i think we're quite good then at building our own communities and in some cases as far as our own families um, and that's always been the way when you look back to LGBT history, we, we have come together and we have formed these group families and communities. And I think the churches need to start thinking that way. That's how the churches started off. They started off as communities. You know, they were persecuted communities. <laughs> if anything, LGBT people have more in common with the early church than most people would actually give credence to that they had to exist in very similar ways, underground, hidden from authorities, hidden from their neighbours. On that note, is it really only now that the, the various different Christian churches are beginning to realise that in terms of, you know, persecuted or previously persecuted minorities, whether it is LGBT or indeed anything else that that sort of realization is finally coming back into the center. Well, I think as well, it's churches these days can't be afford to be picky about who comes in the door. Um, you know, they really can't, as I was saying earlier, like, and, and this pandemic is really going to speed that up, I think, that they can't afford it anymore to choose who comes in. They are going to be, they, they have to be. And in fact, that's, that's what the message of the gospel is. And it's been Jesus's message from day one. And even going back before Jesus, it has been God's message. You know, we are here to love. We don't get to pick and choose. We're here to love. It doesn't matter. We love and we forgive and we get on with it. We build our families, we build our communities, we build our lives. We don't get to judge. That's God's job. And I think institution and that this is where the big big challenge for churches and that is is for the institutions because they're used to the power and we're basically telling them you have to give it up because we don't think that way anymore as as a society we we've moved on and it's time for the institutions to move on now as well and be where where the people are that that's the whole point of church it's the whole point of faith is to be with people and the more it removes itself from it the the the, the more it's it's going to lose its place in society and become irrelevant final word in that case for anyone listening to this that may feel that they've lost their their own way for one reason or another and um, if they are open-minded about the idea of any form of spirituality or religion. What would be your advice to them from your perspective as a man of faith and as a man of communities as well? Um, how does someone find their own way back to themselves? Well, I suppose this is nearly the perfect time to, to experiment with, if you have any bit of faith because every church is now online. And if you don't like the sound of it, that church isn't for you. Move on to the next. And it mightn't be a church, it could be a synagogue, it could be a temple, it can be a mosque, 
they are now all online. So it is more easier than ever now to find what chimes with you. You might not find it. You may find that it's actually being out and about with nature that is actually what enriches you. And I think that's like whatever you believe in, whether it's a God or a higher power, it's out there for you and you just need to be open to it. Whether it's in church or sitting in your back garden with a cup of coffee, listening to the birds or going for walks or wherever. For some people it's by the sea. It's where they feel most like calm and most, most centered, you know, and, it, and for others it's, it's surrounded by people. It's in the midst of a busy city. But it, whatever it is for you, you you'll, you'll find it, but you just need to be open to it and listen to whatever voice or whatever nudges that are there that will bring you there. Perfect way to end it. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. At the end there, I was just smiling by listening to Stephen because he mentioned exactly where I go to take a moment for myself the sea. I've written poetry about it before, but because I grew up right beside Dublin Bay, being by the sea gives me a comfort that is akin to spiritual healing in some ways. It centers me and calms me down whenever I feel lost or angry or upset. So even though I don't consider myself to be religious, I fully understand that sense of faith that Stephen talks about. That's it for today's episode of Recalibrate. Let me know what you think. You can tweet using the hashtag Recalibrate or mention me at Scott de Butler. You can also leave me a voice note by visiting anchor.fm forward slash recalibrate forward slash messages. Until next week, thanks for listening. Look after yourself and chat to you on the next chance to recalibrate. <laughs>